Uh, well, good evening, everyone. Um, hopefully you can hear me, and uh, hello to everyone online. Um, and if we've not met before, I'm Matt. As Nico said, I'm a history teacher by trade. Um, I'm married to Anna, and uh, I have four very beautiful, intelligent, and uh, easy to embarrass children. Um, uh, I'm going to talk for about 15 or 20 minutes, so if the youth want to just time me um, and all there reduce your boredom, that'll be, uh, that'll be okay. Um, and um, as Nathan's already uh, said, we're, we're going to look at a really, really familiar passage, one that you're, you're all um, kind of well-versed in, really, about the three kings. Um, and b- because it's so well-known, um, I thought I'd read it from the message version. Um, you probably know that Eugene Peterson wrote this as a sort of thought-for-thought rather than a word-for-word translation of the Bible. And, and actually, he, he wrote this. He said um, he wrote it for those who hadn't read the Bible because it seemed too distant and irrelevant, and those who had read the Bible so much that it had become old hat. Um, And if this story is old hat, then I thought it might be a bit more engaging if we listened to uh, this kind of contemporary translation. So it will appear on your screens, but if you are a traditionalist and want to just read it from the Bibles, then, then do that. This is Scholars from the East. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east. They asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth. We're on pilgrimage to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified. And not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests and religion scholars in the city together and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They told him, Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet Micah wrote it plainly. It's you, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear, from you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the east, pretending to be as devout as they were. He got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them the prophecy about Bethlehem and said, go find this child, leave no stone unturned, and as soon as you find him, send word, and I'll, I'll join you at once in your worship. Instructed by the king, they set off. Then the star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. Then they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod. So they worked out another route, left the territory without being seen, and returned to their own country. Well, you've probably been watching uh, loads of films over Christmas, and if this was a movie, it would be quite hard to decide what kind of genre it would, uh, it would fit into. Is it, is it an adventure film, people travelling across 
deserts to a mysterious destination in search of a prize? Or is it kind of good versus evil, Herod the villain, the good guys that escape him? Is it a romantic happy ending story, the ancient promise, the young couple, the cute baby? Or is it one of those slightly cryptic weird ones that you don't really understand with odd cosmologists and stars and cryptic gifts? Well, this story is actually all those. There's a lot of drama, there's a lot of people, and there are lots of emotions involved. But I've chosen to mainly focus on one idea. And whilst God is undoubtedly the author and director of this whole amazing story, I wanted us to look at how the different attitudes of those in the story influence the part they play and how they get caught up in what happens while seeing what God may say to us through it too. So let's look at the scholars or the wise men as they're traditionally known. I think I'd describe their attitude as curious. They were clever people who studied stars and planets and tried to learn about the universe and what it all meant. Although they weren't Jewish and they lived far away from Israel, they believed that this star was a sign God was doing something. You might remember that many centuries before, there was one of God's people called Daniel who ended up in exile in Babylon. And Daniel, the wise young Jew, was appointed chief of the Magi and advised the king of Babylon about important matters. So it's likely that Daniel actually introduced the Magi um, as part of their kind of curriculum to the Old Testament scriptures. And this became part of maybe their learning and their traditions. And the wise men must have picked some of that up. But the main point is that these scholars were curious. Curious enough to leave their interesting academic learning, leave their homeland. They called their servants, they packed up their stuff, they chose some gifts and embarked on a long and difficult journey. They didn't have a lot of information, but they were willing to act on what they did know. And if there really was a God and his people had a brand new king, they wanted to be part of that story. And there was a, there was a humility about their curiosity and that's really, really important. Firstly, they wanted to find this king to worship him, not to prove that their hunch was correct or to add to their scholarly knowledge. They had an awareness that what could be happening was something bigger than their own ideas, bigger than their own lives, and they were humble enough to want to worship him. And I think they probably arrived in Jerusalem assuming everyone there would be really, really excited. They innocently and humbly asked around to try and find out more. And once they get the answers they need, they continue on their journey to Bethlehem. And when they find Jesus, they're completely delighted. They're full of wonder. And their reaction is to bow down before this tiny child and give them their treasures. And we'll come back to that bit. But let's rewind and look at Herod's attitude. The passage told us he was terrified when he heard about the questions the scholars were asking. Herod had a rather complicated ethnic and religious background. He was of Arab descent, but he'd been brought up as a Jew. 
And as a ruler of a Jewish population in Judea, he was given the name King of the Jews by the Romans. On the outside, it seemed Herod was quite supportive of the Jewish people. He built a huge temple. Some of it still exists today, the Wailing Wall, where Jews will go and worship. He encouraged priests and Pharisees to carry out their religious rituals. And he was able to show some kindness to his subjects. He, um, in famine times, gave uh, food from the royal courts. He cut taxes twice. Imagine that. It seems he tried to be a Jew to the Jews, but also a Roman to the Romans. So he sacrificed at the temple of Jupiter. He pressured the Jews to kind of accept the Greek sporting events that the Romans were so fond of. So a Jew to the Jews, a Roman to the Romans. So let's be careful. Let's not see Herod as some kind of pantomime villain. He did do some good things, but he had an incredible need to stay in control at all costs. And he was prone to pretty violent attacks of jealousy. This led to him ordering the execution of his own sons at the idea, as the idea of him losing control to them, losing his position to them, was impossible for him to handle. So when Herod hears that some foreign scholars have been sniffing around Jerusalem, suggesting a new king of the Jews had been born, he's threatened. He knows that the people he governs have been waiting for this Messiah for centuries. And whilst he knows that's great for them, it ain't good for him. He's so scared of what it's going to mean for him. So he schemes and plans and lies behind the scenes, pretending to be someone he's not to get the outcome that he wants, to hold on to what he had, to control things. Whereas the wise men had a sense of wonder at being a small part of a big story, Herod thinks the story's all about him. He is the center of the story, and he's going to keep it that way at all costs. He digs himself a hole and keeps on digging. And when it's clear to him that the wise men don't return, he actually has a second chance. Should I just let all this go? Can I be part of this? Might this new king have something to say for me? But instead, keeps on pursuing his own agenda of self-protection. And that led to the desperately cruel massacre of all the young boys. If you've watched uh, the film Nativity, you'll, you'll know the uh, Oakmore School jolly Christmas production with those scenes. So back to the wise men. Well, what happens to them? They, they found the baby, they gave their gifts, they go home. Is that, is that all they do? Turn up with what they have, meet Jesus, go, do their thing, we never hear from them again? Well, maybe there's a bit more to it than that, actually. Their encounter with Jesus has changed them. They have a dream. They work out a different route. They go back a different way. They take a different path. And biblical experts are quick to point out the symbolism in this. Life is different for them, having met Jesus. And their legacy? We three kings of Orient are remembered every year. 
But actually, did they have more of an impact on the life of Jesus and his ministry than we realize? Have you ever considered what happened to those gifts? It hadn't really crossed our minds when Anna and I prepared this sermon that the gold was anything more than just a symbolic gift fit for a king. Then we started to wonder, how did a boy like Jesus, who came from a poor family and spent his early life as a refugee in a foreign land, how come he was able to thrive, learn to read, understand scripture, speak eloquently with learned rabbis at such a young age? I wonder whether Mary and Joseph, believing this child was someone very special indeed, invested the gold to educate their son. It's just an idea, but it's one I like for many reasons. Firstly, it reminds us that God's provision can come from unlikely sources. Secondly, it reminds us that Jesus was human and was subject to the same needs as we are. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, it reminds us that when we offer our gifts of love and worship to Jesus in the form of our time, our talents, our money, just like the wise men who gave what they had and moved on, we may never know what good will become of them. So back to the story. We've looked at the curious scholars, the controlling king, but there's one more group I haven't mentioned. The religious teachers, the priests, the Jewish leaders mentioned in verse 4. The ones who have all the Bible knowledge. They can quote the Old Testament prophecies perfectly. The Messiah is what they've been waiting for for generations. It's their heritage. It's their job. But in one of the most heartbreaking events in the Bible, this group of privileged and committed people, when they get the information that the Messiah may have just been born only six miles away, what do they do? Well, they don't get angry and controlling like Herod. They don't try and fight what God's doing. They don't offer gifts like the curious stargazers or even tag along like the travelers to Bethlehem. They do nothing. The very people who'd been hoping for the birth of this baby missed their chance to be present, to be part of an amazing story. Why? Because they were pretty comfortable with how things were. Comfortable performing their own religious practices in their own way. And there wasn't any room in their hearts or in their diaries for a short trip down a dusty road to a small town. Who knows what they could have left at the feet of Jesus? Their learning, their scrolls. Who knows what contribution they might have made to his ministry? Or how it could have changed their lives? How they could have been, in, they could have been changed by the encounter? But there wasn't any encounter because despite having every opportunity to do so, they chose not to show up. And that's really sad. Last month at one of our um, 
meetings before the service, Anna had a word, actually, about showing up. So we've been thinking about that. The power of just showing up. Putting yourself in a place that shows you want to be part of God's story. Part of the bigger picture. Even if you don't understand exactly what that looks like. There's something really important about simply turning up, showing your face, even if it's virtually in these COVID times. If I'm honest, I often find that in a busy and relatively comfortable life, there are many times where I just don't fancy turning up. I can't see the point or what impact I will have. And sometimes we may feel we've got nothing at all to give or that we won't enjoy it. But that isn't the point. We can't control the outcomes. We may never know how we are changed by our encounters with Jesus, or how other people might be blessed, or what legacy we leave by choosing to actively get involved in God's story. Those outcomes are not our responsibilities. We show up, God does the rest good day, bad day, in person, on Zoom, with something to offer, broken and empty-handed. We turn up because God isn't going to love us more or because we've got something to prove, but because we realize it's often pretty much all we can do. I wonder when and where or maybe to who you need to show your face this year. It's going to be very different for everyone. For one person, it might be that God actually asks you to leave a kind of a normal religious meeting or religious building to actually go outside the church, like the religious leaders could have done, to show up at the equivalent of a barn or a cave in a community, maybe near here, maybe far away from here. For others, it might be that God wants you to leave your work behind, like the Magi had to. Some of you might actually need to just give yourselves more time just to rest in God's embrace, in God's love. And it goes without saying that if we are going to choose to turn up to something else, we might need to drop something. We might need to give something else up in order to do that. So I wonder whether we could just take a minute or two just to quietly ask God whether there is something that he'd like us to show up to in 2022? Is there something, someone, somewhere that may be important for you to show your face this year? So this is between you and God. You might like to close your eyes. You might like to bow your heads. But let's spend a couple of minutes just trying to listen to God. Father, please come by your Spirit. Would you help us to hear from you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'd really uh, encourage you to maybe share with another person at the end of the service um, if, if God prompted you to, to commit to something for, for next year. But um, because I'd obviously planned this, I'm going to share mine. Um, and I, I kind of 
been thinking about this for a while, really, about but where, where I should show up, and that's um, about prayer. Um, I'm kind of preaching to the converted here, really, but prayer is pretty much the most important thing we can do as Christians. It shows our faith. It shows our dependency on God. It's so powerful. It's biblical. Jesus did it. I'm sure all of you will agree with all of those things, but um, I, I recently found out um, that at our whole church prayer meeting in December, um, Richard was in this building. Richard's the, the rector, if you don't know who he is. And he was all alone. He was by himself. There were a handful of people online. It's COVID times. I know it's COVID times. But thinking of Richard by himself at our corporate church meeting, just, I was just absolutely heartbroken. It made me so sad. So this year, um, I want to be part of God's story through praying. I'm going to turn up to those prayer meetings one hour every month. There are some things I'm going to need to change maybe, but I'm going to try to put in my calendar those Wednesdays at 8 o'clock. It actually starts this week, funnily enough. Um, then I think it might switch to a Thursday in February onwards. But anyway, I'm going to be there, um, whether in person or online. Richard might never see me with my camera on. I might be in my pajamas drinking whiskey. doesn't matter. I'm going to commit to it. And I'm asking all of you to hold me accountable to that. So uh, if anyone is, uh, is present or online and I'm not, then make sure you challenge me on it. So that's mine. And I'd really encourage you to share yours uh, when, when appropriate. Um, and as the band come up, maybe, I'm just going to remind you of my three C's as kind of takeaways. Um, and uh, they're, they're up on the board. So just for this year, let's be curious about what, what God is doing, like those stargazers. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to, to maybe loosen our grip of what we strive to control. And let's pray that we're not so comfortable that we miss opportunities to play our part in God's amazing story. And as we begin to worship now, I just pray that God would continue to speak to you about um, those challenges he has for you, about how you are going to show up in 2022. Thanks, Nathan.